Let us again turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of Mark. We come to the fifth chapter. And we'll read the first 20 verses. But first, let us bow before the Lord our God. Our Father, this is the word to which we now turn that is given by divine inspiration. We know that it is without error in the whole and in the part. We know that life without the Word of God is absurd. And we pray that our minds might be arrested, our wills controlled, our emotions moved every time we turn to the Word of God. Because in this book, we find the redeeming purpose of our Heavenly Father to whom we now pray through the Son who shed his blood and rose from the dead and who is coming again. And the Holy Spirit has given this book by divine inspiration. And that same Holy Spirit regenerates and illumines. And so we pray for that now, that the Holy Spirit who has given this book by divine inspiration will regenerate some heart that is now lost, bring someone to conversion who does not know Christ, and that the people of God that each of us will be built up in the most holy faith. Father, the minister is nothing. Hide the minister, but exalt the Savior. And may we leave this place saying one to another and to our own hearts, who is this? God in the flesh, the only Redeemer of God's elect. What a Savior he is. May we magnify thy name together is our great prayer humbly asked in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. 
So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the King has come. He has authority over winds and waves and even over the demonic realm. When Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom, there was an acceleration of demonic activity. And this vivid incident demonstrates the truth of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Deliverance from the forces of evil is still our great need. Someone has pointed out that we move from a wild sea to a wild man in this passage. Both, humanly speaking, untamable, but Jesus subdued them both. Now, you will have noticed that we read of the Gerasenes here, If you go to Matthew, you read of the Gadarenes, and there are some who try to attempt to point out contradictions. But no, the city Kersa or Garasa, the ruins of which you can see even today, was in the district of Gadara. So Matthew is emphasizing the district, and Mark is emphasizing the nearness of the city where this happened. So when we come to this text, the first thing that we see is a man in total bondage, This man is a slave. He is in complete darkness. He is dominated by unclean spirits. This means, of course, an evil spirit, a morally filthy demon that is opposed to all that is good. He had no self-control. Others could not control him. They attempted to bind him so that he would not hurt himself or others, but with demonic strength, he broke the bonds. And probably those around could say, you see these shackles? You see these portions of these chains? This is evidence of what he is capable of doing. He was hopeless. He was helpless. He was bent on self-destruction. And he cut himself, very possibly indicating involvement in pagan worship. And he made his home in tombs. Could there have been a sadder sight or a sadder human being on the globe than this man? This is demon possession, not just a mental problem, and it is terrifying. It is completely 
out of the scope of man's correction. There is nothing this man could have done for himself. There is nothing that others could have done to save this man from his awful bondage. The details are vivid. For example, the mention here of his cry, his wild frenzy, his shrieks that would have echoed through the rock tombs. And even the verb that is used here for cut is the verb that means to cut down. He was cutting himself down and scars would be all over his body because sin dehumanizes and Satan dehumanizes. And this is a sight to be seen on various levels all around us even now. Even though we're not talking about demon possession, there is still demonic activity and the evil one making use of original sin. Doesn't this represent fallen humanity? Is it not a picture in some way of fallen humanity? Perhaps not so overt, I say, as demon possession, but we're still living among the dead. Do we not read in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of those around us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ are dead in trespasses and sins? One need not be demon-possessed to be the devil's child. Did not our Lord say to the Pharisees, ye are of your father the devil? And in verse 5, we see that Satan's agenda is to destroy and distort and disfigure all that it means that man is God's image. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And so man, fallen man, in his thinking, in his feeling, in his music, in his art, in his work, in his play, in his philosophizing, and relationships, and in our inner being. The point of Satan's work in our midst is to turn man created in God's image into the bearer of his ugly, rebellious, godless image. And so as we see something of the state of this man in this text, we ask, is there hope? He could not help himself. Who could help him? Is there hope? But then we move secondly in the text and we see Jesus' authority over the demonic. Although the man runs to Jesus and falls on his knees. Now, is this because there's something irresistible about Jesus? Is it because, as R.T. France thinks, that there's an element of conflict within the man himself between his own desire to meet Jesus and the reluctance of the resident demons? In any case, the text is plain. The man is under the control of the demonic, and a day is coming, according to Holy Scripture, when even the demons will kneel before the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is true of every one of us as well. But I think it's reasonable, given the text, I think confronted with the Son of God, the man kneels down before Jesus because within him the demons prostrate themselves before the one whom they know can destroy him. Destroy them. And we read in verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice. You see, they ran and fell down. He ran and fell down, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demon, and of course it will become very clear that we're not talking about one. Perhaps one is a spokes demon, a spokesperson, if we may put it that way. But there are many. The demon 
the demons know full well who Jesus is. Jesus, son of the most high God. You'll remember the demon-possessed man of whom we read in the very first chapter of Mark's gospel in verses 23 and 24. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have we to do, you to, you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And here we have the Most High God, the Son of the Most High God. And they're right. They understand who he is. They know why he has come, at least in some measure. And Mark means for you to adopt their point of view. I mean, on this particular issue of who Jesus is, which according to the very first and opening verses of Mark's gospel is what Mark is all about. So that we may know and recognize Jesus to be the Son of God. You are intended to adopt that point of view only with this difference. The devils believe and tremble, but they do not trust. They do not come to him for salvation or for redemption. He is not their redeemer. He is the redeemer of God's people. The difference is that not only you acknowledge him to be the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, God come down to be our redeemer and our savior from sin, but that you entrust your heart to him. And believe in him as your Lord and your Savior from sin. And so in verse 7, they fear because they know who Jesus is. They understand that he is the Son of the Most High God. And they know why he has come. And they know that the arrival of the kingdom means the beginning of the end for the world of darkness. As Herman Ritterboss, the Dutch New Testament scholar, said, for the exercise of God's power over the devil has the coming of the kingdom as its foundation. The coming of the kingdom is the initial stage of the great drama of the history of the world. And so the demon knows that Jesus can cast him and all of them into the abyss. He is the son of the most high God, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He is of the same substance, essence with the Father. He has all power and authority, and he can do this. And in verse 8, it makes plain that the demon knows, one seeming to speak for many of them, they know that they must leave. And this is a sign, again, of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world and into our lives. Jesus has come, things must change. There must be a new life, a new world. Life must change. A new Lord reigns. The saving reign of the Lord has begun. Things cannot go on as usual. And so everything here is about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, his lordship. Now listen, there are two kingdoms according to God's word. There are two kingdoms and two kings. One is a dark realm. One is the realm of light. One with a malevolent master, one with an omnipotently loving and benevolent master, one who is out to destroy, one who saves and heals, one who hates another, who loves and shows grace. And the call to conversion, to deliverance, to the kingdom of light is here in this text for all who will hear it. 
There must be a transition for this man from where he is to where Christ brings him. There must be, in other words, a transition from wrath to grace. And that's true of every human being born on the globe, original sin dominating our lives, the corruption of our nature. If we are to be saved, there must be a transition from wrath to grace, from condemnation to the kingdom of God's own dear Son. So young people, do you see, do you understand, when we speak of the kingdom, we are saying the saving rule of Christ has broken into this world and into this age and into our lives, and that life must change since Jesus has come, that he is the Savior from sin, that he is the Lord of our lives, and that we cannot belong both to the kingdoms of darkness and the kingdom of light at the same time. We must be either in the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of light. To which kingdom do you belong? But then thirdly, Jesus' deliverance of the demon-possessed man. His deliverance of this man. So the question is from Jesus, what is your name? You see, he asks in verse 9, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Someone has suggested that Jesus asks the name of the demon for the sake of the demon-possessed man to tear him loose from his close association, almost identification with these demons that possess his life and hold him in bondage. My name, says the demon, speaking of all of them and for all of them, is legion. Now what did this response mean? Well, a Roman legion would be between 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. I'm not sure the text is trying to give us a specific number. We know that soon they will go into the pigs, and there were 2,000 approximately uh, pigs. But was the demonic host attempting to evade the answer? Again, someone has suggested he answered correctly, my name is Soldier. Yes, indeed. But what seems certain is that the man was tormented by a great host of demons who do so with combined forces as if they were one. Sinclair Ferguson made the statement, Legion expresses the fact that the man has been used as an outpost of demonic activity in this world. Perhaps in this military language, we are meant to catch the fact that Satan's opposition to the kingdom of God is not haphazard, but ruthlessly well-organized. And it is. Now, there were pigs in this Gentile area. Some of you will know of whom I speak. There was a British philosopher, I will not mention his name, who had a list of reasons why he would not be a Christian. And one of the reasons listed in his list was because of Jesus' treatment of the pigs. The destruction, this wanton destruction of the pigs. How can I follow Jesus of Nazareth when he wantonly destroyed the pigs? Well, Jesus, the creator of the pigs, does not share this gentleman's perspective on pigs. And he does not need to give an account to us for what he does. And imagine standing before the Lord at the judgment. I did not trust in Christ because he destroyed the pigs, though he saved the man. No, it will not do. And of course, there will be no words of argument before the Lord on the day of judgment. Every 
lost person's heart and conscience will condemn him. What excuses men will come up with for not trusting in Christ, for rebelling against Christ. What about you? Is there someone here and you have all kinds of excuses for not coming to Christ, trusting Christ, believing in Christ? Well, the pigs in all things are Christ and must obey his design in his conquest of evil. Why did the demons want to go into the pigs? Well, you'll notice verse 10. He begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. They wanted to remain in the country. They liked the area. It was a wasteland. It was full of tombs, uh, skulls and bones and dead things. It appealed to them. Maybe they saw another opportunity with the pigs to bring more havoc and destruction. Maybe they, they wanted to bring anger against Jesus by the populace because they knew they would destroy the pigs. Well, I think all of those may be possible reasons, but ultimately I think the reason is this. The reason they wanted to go into the pigs was because it was better than hell. Because they tremble before the Lord of glory, and they know that he has the right, the authority, the power, the sovereignty to send them directly into the pit. The time of the end had not yet come, however, but they knew the Son of God had the right to judge them now. So let's stress, Satan has no power in the presence of Jesus Christ. They understood Jesus' mission and anticipated, and all of this is the day in which they will all be judged. So why did Jesus allow, which I think is probably a better translation than permitted, why did he allow these demons to go into the swine? The demons go into the herd of swine. Why? Well, I think, and I don't have a chapter in verse, I'm trying to think through the text and its logic, I think the main reason is that Jesus is intending to demonstrate the intention of the demons for the man they possessed and for the world that they hate. Their design, total destruction. And when they are allowed to go into the pigs and not restrained, it demonstrates hatred, bitterness, total destruction. Their purpose for men is not one bit different than the madness into which they drove the pigs when they entered into their bodies. And so this wonderful power of the Lord Jesus Christ, enabling them to do as they willed. In verse 13, so he gave them permission or allowed, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. So they rushed down, driven Whatever it means for a pig to be stark raving mad, they were mad, and one by one they plummeted into these dirty, filthy, shrieking pigs, demon-possessed, one by one plummeted into the sea. And we really need to come to grips with the fact that this is what Satan is after. 
that when we go our own way rather than God's way, we are really going Satan's way. And to go Satan's way, well, his aim is to destroy you just as he's destroying so many in our culture, so many in our society, so many of our young people that are buying into foolish, foolish things whose lives will never be the same unless the Lord redeemed them. This is what he attempts to do in inspiring wicked men to put Jesus on the cross. But the cross is the cross of God's eternal plan to save his elect from sin. And Satan can never, ever, under any circumstance, thwart the eternal plan of God. Nothing can stop God's purpose to restore his image in this man and in his fallen creation. As you notice the participles there in verse 15, look at what the man was, distracted, completely confused, utterly mad, cutting himself and shrieking among the tombs. And now in verse 15, you see the participles? He's seated. He's seated. He's clothed. He's restored. What a contrast. And Mark intends for us to see, I think here, in retelling what was the preaching of Peter, as we have been saying, he intends for us to see a picture of redemption, a picture of true conversion, a picture of restoration. I'm not suggesting that everyone that is converted has been demon-possessed. That's not the point at all, but the similarities are there. And now he sits, and this man, once tormented, is now at rest in his body, in his soul. He had been naked and now he is clothed. He had been dehumanized, and now he's sitting among friends and is restored. The Jewish Christian New Testament scholar Alfred Edersheim made the statement that this was a parabolic miracle. Yes, indeed, it is a miracle that continues to speak to us about Christ, continues to teach us. This historical account will teach us for all time until Christ comes again. And Calvin rightly said, Though we are not tormented by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. And how many people here in this congregation can testify to that? That before I came to the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed, I wandered about and I needed restoration. I was not even of a sound mind. I couldn't think straight. When I did think, I thought with a certain set of presuppositions that were ungodly, and yet now I find myself seated and clothed and restored. Oh, not yet perfect in my heart, though justified completely. I'm not yet fully sanctified. I will be one day, but the humanity has been restored. And look how recreative God is. This is akin to the resurrection from the dead because this man had lived among the dead. Every miracle of Jesus is an overcoming of death, an exercise of his resurrection power before the actual resurrection of Jesus took place, like a light beaming in two directions, back to the empty tomb and ahead to our own empty graves. That's the power of every miracle of Jesus Christ speaking of the one who would be raised by the power of God from the dead. And this man is now there in beauty, in order, 
and restoration and sanity that points ultimately to the end of the age when all things are restored by Jesus, Jesus Christ who comes again. And all of those around him had given up on him. He was beyond their help. But he was not beyond the help of the Lord. Now, there may be somebody here today and you think, my sin is so deep and my sins are so great, I'm completely beyond any help. Let me read something to you from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is a sermon he preached in 1865, I believe. It was a sermon on heaven and hell. And he says this, take it to heart. There are some here who are laughing at salvation who can scoff at Christ and mock at the gospel. But I tell you, some of you shall come yet. What you say, can God make me become a Christian? I tell you, yes. For herein rests the power of the gospel. It does not ask your consent, but it gets it. It does not say, will you have it? But it makes you willing in the day of God's power. The gospel wants not your consent. It gets it. It knocks the enmity, the hatred, out of your heart. You say, I do not want to be saved. Christ says you shall be. He makes your will turn around. And then you cry, Lord, save or I perish. Ah, might heaven exclaim, I knew I would make you say that. And then he rejoices over you because he has changed your will and made you willing in the day of his power. If Jesus Christ were to stand on this platform tonight, what would many people do with him? If he were to come and say, here I am, I love you. Will you be saved by me? Not one of you would consent if you were left to your own will. He himself said, no man can come to me except the father who sent me draw him. Ah, We want that. Here we have it. They shall come. They shall come. You may laugh, you may despise us, but Jesus Christ shall not die for nothing. If some of you reject him, others, there are some who will not. If there are some that are not saved, others shall be. Christ shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. They shall come, and not in heaven, nor on earth, nor in hell can stop them from coming. Not when the Father draws them to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love those passages in Holy Scripture in which God says, I shall, I will. What a low view of God we have. But now let's look at the response of the townspeople. In verses 16 and 17, we read, and those who had, well, let's move on back. Let's move to verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Severe blow to the economy. Lose that herd of pigs. What else are we going to lose if we keep Jesus around? 
And it seems to be because of Jesus' deeply disturbing presence. They were afraid because he was not tame, because he was not controllable, because, to put it in another word, because of his holiness, because holiness both repels and attracts. It repels those who will not have Christ. It attracts those in whom the Holy Spirit is working to draw them. And so they're taking their point of departure from within themselves. Should they not have believed? Should they not have gathered everybody around? Let's listen to this man. Should they not have asked him about who he was from where he came, what his mission was? Should they not have brought their needy and their sick to him? Should they not have asked him to heal them? Should they not have trusted him and believed in him? Yes. Should they not have rejoiced with this man that had just been set free? Yes. So where do you fit in this consideration? It's just really upsetting, isn't it, when we say of Christ, when he comes, your life has to change. Things have to be different. That you might even lose your herd of pigs. But better that than lose your immortal soul. Adolf Minot said, there is no peace for the man who takes his point of departure from within himself. Do not do that. May your point of departure be from what is written in this book, from what God says about who he is and what your need is and how he meets it in Christ. But now contrast the former demoniac with the populace. And with this we end. We'll call this the fifth point, discipleship. The man had an opportunity right where he was to spread the good news. So in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So did you notice this is a missionary text? The foundation has been laid for the gospel to be proclaimed by the work of Jesus in this area, the Decapolis, those ten cities, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles living there. And he tells of Jesus in the whole Decapolis. Who needs Jesus more than this population who begged him to leave? You know, I was talking with Waller Tab, who just returned from Israel, and several of you probably have been at this very spot. And Waller and Mary were at this very spot just a few days ago. And there he saw the mountainous region, and he saw the, the cliff over which the pigs would have gone. And he was told by a guide, I can't confirm it, I don't know if Waller's been able to confirm it, but he said that in later history after this, there were seven churches in this area. Seven churches. Where did those seven churches, from where did they come? Well, from this man ultimately, right? Who went about the whole region of the Decapolis and told what Jesus had done for him. And we have more of the message to tell. We have the cross, we have the resurrection, we have the coming again that is promised the liberating power of the kingdom of God. 
So let's conclude it this way. Our worldview would be very far from that of the Bible, and we would be very unwise if we did not acknowledge the realm of darkness. What Christian can look at this world? Yes, a sinful world, but look at some of the perversion that is being promoted even by government today and not see that there is some other governance at work here, and it's the kingdom of darkness. Of course, as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He's always under the sovereignty of God. But nonetheless, we would be very unwise if we did not acknowledge the kingdom of darkness. What a day it will be when we see the demonic hosts cast into the pit and we shout our hallelujahs. And from one perspective, the entire ministry of Jesus was a casting out of the devil. Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so if our main focus is on the demonic in this passage, then we've really missed the point. Just as when Jesus stilled the sea, the question was, who is this? And now, right after that event, the wild sea, now the wild man, the same question should go through the minds of the readers of Mark's gospel. Who is this that can still the waters, silence the wind, cast out legions of demons? Who is this? And note the well, the language of verses 19 and 20. Jesus won't allow him to come. He wants him to go and tell. Tell them how much the Lord, how much God, how much the Lord has done for you. And that's exactly what he does. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus, who is the Lord, who is God in the flesh, had done for him. And all through this room, to the glory of God, let me say, are people to whom the Lord has shown sovereign pity and infinite mercy. And we who know the good news know what the Lord can do for any sinner with the deepest sin and sins. The kingdom has come because the King has come. God's saving rule has come because the Savior has come. And the Lord Jesus can save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. And there is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no other mediator, no other redeemer, no other savior, no good work, no philosophy, nothing you can do, nothing you can perform. It's all of grace from first to last. Do you see? So your sins can be legion, but Jesus can as easily forgive a sinner as cast out demons because he did the hard thing of going to the cross and purchasing sinners to himself and bearing the wrath of God in our place and casting out the evil one. And so now he shows grace, infinite grace, to lost, bound sinners enslaved in their wills. Robert Trail, Presbyterian forefather who suffered for the faith, said there is more grace in the promise. Listen to this. There is more grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. 
God's grace is greater than my sin. God's grace is greater than your sin. Oh yes, go to him because his grace is greater than all of your sin, all of your misery. He is the Lord. The King has come. Amen. Amen.